Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Okay. So the doctrine of sin, just to <coughs> cheer us up at the end of the morning. Uh, let's be honest, sin isn't something we like to think about. It's probably something we feel a bit uncomfortable with. We might just think it's a topic that'll make us miserable. We might think it's unnecessary for us to think about as Christians. But actually, I hope we're going to see today, it's really important to think about the doctrine of sin and actually really helpful. I think there are genuine practical uh, helps that we receive when we do this. It's really important partly because, of course, the doctrine of sin and the reality of sin is the backdrop for the gospel and really for the whole of the Bible story. The whole Bible story from Genesis 3 onwards is how is God going to deal with this problem of sin to get us back to actually what he's created us for, what he wants for us. Sin is, in a sense, the darkness needed for the light, the disaster, for the hope, the problem you need actually for the solution really to be the solution. So it's an important, uh, important thing for us to get our heads around. And it's also really helpful. Understanding uh, some of the truths about sin in the Bible, adopting a sin, helps us in our own walk with God, in our own battle with sin. Linked to that, it helps us as we seek to disciple and encourage and spur on each other. And also, actually, I think it helps us in uh, evangelism and apologetics, in engaging with people who aren't yet followers of Jesus. Again, because I think it's the background to the good news we're sharing. So we're going to look at this doctrine and then see why it's good news. And my kind of well, my hope, my expectation is we are going to realise today we are far more sinful and corrupt than we do realise. But then when you realise that as a Christian, yeah, yeah, cheers, that, yes. But then when you realise that as a Christian, you then wonderfully also realise the gospel is so much more wonderful than you often realise. The grace and goodness of God are more wonderful than you often realise. So it kind of has a good, a good outcome when we do realise that. First of all, let's just actually work out what actually even is sin. What is sin might sound like a very simple question, but it's kind of not, I think, as simple as you might assume. One thing it just shows that, actually, if you look up various kind of Christian thinkers, various different books on theology and ask, or look for their answer to the question, you'll actually get many different answers. It seems to be not a very uniform thing. And I think that's because it's kind of hard to answer in one statement. There are, in a sense, different ways we can answer it, or different levels. And I find it helpful to think, actually, of what is sin at different levels, and that's the way I try to conceptualise it. Each one, I guess, getting us further into the core of what sin is. So on one level, sin is the failure to keep God's law. And that's what you find a lot of people saying, especially in kind of reformed theological circles, that would be a very common definition of sin. And that's supported by things like the most common words used in the Bible for sin. In both Greek and Hebrew, the most common words kind of carry the sense of missing the mark, as in, you know, shooting the arrow and actually not, miss it, not hitting the bullseye, missing the mark there. Other biblical terms, I think, imply the same transgression, lawlessness, all have this sense, actually, of breaking laws, of not keeping laws. And so that is one definition of one element of what sin is. But I think just to say that sin is breaking God's law, is failure to keep God's law, I think that actually raises another question with, well, what's wrong with breaking God's law? Which kind of points us to level two, as it were, of what sin is. Which is that sin is a failure to trust God and attempt to take his rightful place. 
Actually, the laws we talk about breaking are the laws God has revealed, which are the ways that are best for us to live, the ways that will lead to thriving and flourishing, the way that we are <coughs> created to live, and the way that things work best, which means actually failing to keep those laws is failing to trust the goodness of God. And really, it's saying we know better than God. We have a better idea of what will ultimately be good for us or good for other people than God does. And so sin in breaking God's law actually is also a failure to trust him and kind of putting us in God's place in the sense that we're saying we are the ones who are going to dictate and determine what actually it is that um, is going to be best for us and that is good for us to do. I think that's something you see very clearly in Genesis 3, and we'll come to that in a minute, that actually sin is about thinking we know what's best for us and not trusting that God knows what's best for us. But then on that one, you can then ask the question, well, but why is it wrong for us not to trust God and, not, and to seek to take his place? Which I think takes us to the third element or level of what is sin. What I see is really at the core of that, which is that sin is a failure of the creature to fulfil its obligations to the creator. It's our failure as creatures to relate to God as our creator in the way that is right and is fitting. It's right and fitting for us as the creatures of the creator to offer him thanks, to offer him honour. And the honour would include through obedience to his ways and to his plans and to, yeah, to give thanks to him. And so ultimately, sin is rooted in a failure to fulfil our duties, what we should do as creatures, as we stand under and stand in relationship <coughs> to the Creator. And in that way, it's to kind of blur the distinction between created and Creator. Because again, it's to kind of put ourselves in God's place. It's to act as if we were the Creator, and therefore the one who has the authority to have the say-so on how we live, rather than to have the humility of a creature and to live under that. And this, I think, ultimately is why sin is wrong. It's actually it's a failure in the duties that we have, which are kind of, they're inherent in who we are. They're written into the very framework of how things are in the sense that because we are created and God is the creator. And I think Romans 1 would be the place that we very much see um, the idea of sin being a failure of creatures in relation to creator. There are three levels there, which is, I've shown you can kind of work down. I think you can also kind of work up. You can kind of think of these like roots and shoots and flowers. You could say the, the very roots of sin, the deepest core of sin, is actually the failure to recognise and to keep our obligations as the creatures of the Creator. And actually when we fail to recognise that's who we are in relation to God, how that should make us act, that can kind of lead to the shoots of a failure to trust God and we attempt to take his place. That's kind of what grows out of those roots of failing to recognise and acknowledge that distinction. And then from those shoots kind of come actually the flowers of failing to keep God's law. That's kind of the actual, <clears throat> the more visible outworking of what's already happened, which is we've sought to take God's place, we've failed to trust him, which ultimately is all because we have blurred the line between the distinction between creator and created. And just notice, and we'll come back to this a few times, I think, how this deeper understanding of sin actually I think is very helpful. If sin is just the failure to keep God's law, people can very easily hear that and think, well, it's just arbitrary. This is just God asking us to jump through some hoops. It's like a dog at Crufts jumping through hoops and, frankly, what's the point? And people think, well, why should God care so much about these things? Why should I do these things if it's just arbitrary? God wanting me to you know, impress him or perform for him. 
And actually this deeper understanding of, no, this is actually about the very grain of how things are. This is about an understandable duty that we have because we are creatures and he is the creator. I think this makes a bit more sense. It's, it's not arbitrary. People can just see, you know, it makes sense. If we're created, it makes sense. We'd have duties to our creator, that kind of thing. I think that is, um, I think that is helpful. And so that's one of the ways I think that apologetically, actually understanding in more depth the doctrine of sin can be helpful. People can get the idea if we're created, even if it's hypothetical for them, it makes sense we'd have obligations. It makes sense that if we don't fulfill them, there's a problem. I think it begins to work better. That's my kind of <clears throat> musing on how I wrestle with the question of what is it, what actually is sin. I think about it at those different levels. And I think we should think about the entry impact of sin. Actually, how does sin enter into the world? How did it come into human existence, into human experience? And what was and what has been the impact of this? And this is actually where I'm going to use some work to get some key passages. We're going to look at Genesis 3 and Romans 1. I think arguably two of the most important scriptural passages that interact with this doctrine, interact with this teaching, helping us to see how sin entered human experience, also helping us to see the impact of sin on us and on our experience. Genesis 3, of course, is the story of what we classically call the fall, after you have God's perfect creation, but then actually everything being damaged and interrupted and disrupted by sin's very first entry into human existence through the sin of Adam and Eve. And it stands you know, as that um, key problem in the story, the key point of tension, I guess, in the story at the beginning of the Bible, to which the rest of the Bible provides the answer how God is going to engage with that and deal with that. Everything that follows, basically, is an outwork of what happens in that key event. But actually, to look at the details of what happens in that event is really helpful for understanding what sin is, the impact that sin has. Really helpful also, actually, for understanding how temptation works. And we'll talk about that as well. And then Romans 1, opening chapter of um, Paul's letter to the Romans, this letter where he's writing to a bunch of people he's not met in person. And so one of the things he's doing is laying out for them the core elements of the gospel he preaches to kind of show them He's kosher in a sense, but also he's doing other things there. And before getting to the glorious solution of the gospel, which he begins to get to in chapter 3, he first really labours the problem, that thing again, the darkness into which the light of the gospel comes. And the second half of Romans 1 particularly is where he uh, focuses in on kind of really what is sin, what is the problem the gospel is going to come and solve, which tells us a lot about what sin is, and particularly the uh, impact of the effects of sin. So we're going to take some time to look at these. Again, I'm going to suggest we split the room in half so that we kind of cover both. So I'm going to ask this half over here, if you guys start on the Genesis 2 to 3 passage, you'll see the passage there in the notes and some questions that will just help you hopefully to unpack it and tease it out a little bit. On this other side of the room, on my left, if you look at the Romans 1 passage, again, the verses are there, some questions. Obviously, if you get through it all you want to look at the other one that's absolutely fine we're going to take about 15 minutes yeah about 15 minutes to look at this in your groups so you've got a decent chunk of time to really kind of wrestle with it together feel free to do both say if you want to and then we're going to come back we're going to learn from each other and feedback on what we've learned from that so let's take the time to do that think about the impact and the entry of sin so um this side you were doing genesis 3 weren't you is that correct Let's see what we thought. Actually, out of interest, did you get to Romans 1 at all? Did people do both or one? Just helpful for me to know. Well, that's fine, good. We're now learning from each other. Perfect. So, Genesis 3. 
What do you guys find on how does sin enter into human existence? What did you find and what were your questions, your thoughts around that? Okay, nice. So, did God really say? The mm-hmm. um, woman starts out saying, yes, he did. This is it was just a restatement of what God had said. Uh, and then the, the snake changed tack and said, I'm just focused on the last little bit. Mm-hmm. Just constantly putting doubt in. Yeah. Does, this is an interesting point. Does the woman say what God said? No. Um, she, she adds a bit. Yeah, she adds a bit. <laughs> she adds, does the woman actually say what God says? Interestingly, she adds a bit. Yeah. She adds or touch. God knows they might have touched there, but she says adds or touch. It's just interesting how easy it is for us to. <clears throat> did she misremember? Did she have a wrong assumption of what God was like? Or it's just kind of an interesting thing. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, <clears throat> the origin of sin, it, it, it enters human existence through a challenge to authority, <clears throat> which means someone else is involved. It says, actually, Satan, the devil, is involved in the form of this serpent, in a sense. It's he who seems to be some sort of instigator in it, which tends to raise the question of people, where does he come from? And so where does sin come from? Well, actually, from the temptation of the serpent, where does the serpent come from? Which becomes a rather complex thing, because we don't know, basically, in a sense. Towards it is there because she, she could have said no, but obedient. So I would say to produce is that. Yeah. There's a response from demanded. Yeah, that, that is so interesting. Yeah. It, Could you repeat that comment? Yeah, the comment was there. It's interesting that there's a, uh, I think your phrase there was a, a bent towards sin, like an inclination towards sin already present, it would seem, because the temptation comes and this thing comes from that. And I agree, it says it looks, or it can easily look like that to us, but that's kind of problematic because the Bible teaches, we're going to see, that actually our inclination towards seeing comes as a result of this event. And that is a really, it's a really complex question, actually. Why does she do it? She wasn't a sinful being. <clears throat> there was no sin in the world. She wasn't a sinful being. She, judging a scripture teaching, didn't have a sinful inclination yet. So how did it happen? Theologians sometimes distinguish between two types of temptation. There's external temptation and internal temptation. This is external temptation in the sense of something very external to her, which comes and tempts her. Um, the temptation Jesus faced in the wilderness was very clearly external temptation. Internal temptation is when we are um, tempted by our own sinful desires. And so I think, I mean, what theologians say, I think it's true, I guess, is this is an example of external temptation. <coughs> which then connects with what our natural human desires. So, of course, the woman sees the fruit and she sees that it looks good and it looks like it will be tasty. And it's, those desires aren't wrong, but actually to listen to those desires over God is wrong. So it wasn't that her desires are sinful, um, but that they get misused. It's also, um, Satan also said, that, and you will be like God. Yes. Which is more than an external... Absolutely. Well, and it's a desire, yeah, the desire to be, is that rooted in, that's the complex desire. Was that desire, so she desired that, was that desire sinful? She was meant, sorry, I was thinking she was meant to be like God. They were already like God. So she didn't actually need to do anything to become more. Yeah, yeah. She was. That is true. I think we are meant to see that. Yeah, absolutely see it in the narrative. Maybe the, maybe the sin actually occurs, starts in her 
choice to desire to be like God before she eats the fruit. That's all right, yeah. One, I mean, one of the complex questions we weren't going to tackle, but we can, in the doctrine of sin, is whether desires themselves can be sinful and whether it is sinful to desire something that is sinful. Um, we should get a lot, a lot kind of in the debate. Which is why I said we're going to go into much more sinful than we think we are, but the gospel is much better also. So, so that's kind of right. Which I, I, think, I think yes and no. So this comes up a lot in ethics of sexuality. And people will say that Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5 about if you look lustfully, that's sin in the same way as acting. People say that shows that to desire something sinful is itself sinful. I sure think it does. Jesus is very clear. There's a purpose clause there. there. If you look in order to lust, that's different from seeing someone and having a natural human reaction of there's beauty there to which I'm reacting. Which is this thing I think of, I think what's going on here is she's got natural human desires for things like beauty and food and such like, but then the temptation makes users of that and takes them further and makes them into sinful desires. And maybe, yeah, maybe the combination of the two helpful comments here, maybe because he said we are already made in God's image, already like God, maybe the desire to be like God in and of itself wasn't problematic, but going against the parameters God had set was. No. Trying to do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true, yeah. Uh, yeah, trying to do it separately from apart from God. That is very true, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, it, does, it doesn't say that she was trying to be like God. Although that was the, um, the, that was the thing that she was tempted with, it just said it was to, that it was um, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gain and wisdom. Yes. So, it, she's, so you, you, you can't really say that actually the reason that she's doing it is because she wants to be like God, even though that's where the root of the temptation came. But she, she looked at it in a different way, mm. going, I want to be wise because it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which kind of raises, you know, if we were doing such a genesis, the question would be, what does it mean for it to be the tree of good and evil? What's it mean to, as God says, to know good and evil if they eat from it? Does that mean to know everything, as in good and evil at the end of the spectrum, so it encompasses everything? Does it mean actually you have a sense of morality, right or wrong? Is it more broad, which she seems to suggest it is, actually about kind of wisdom? Um, yeah, I'm not sure. This is a healthy exercise. A, it shows you I don't know everything, which I always like to make very clear. And B, this is how we, this is how we wrestle with text. This is how we do theological um, kind of thinking. <coughs> Let's just tackle with other questions, otherwise we'll be here forever. What's so bad about what Adam and Eve do? And what does this teach us about what sin actually is? Yes, definitely. So one of those things we've seen already, what's at the core of sin, Creator putting it ourselves in, uh, created putting ourselves in the Creator's place. Most definitely, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. God's given this command for their good, because it's really important in Genesis 2, it's don't eat from this tree or you'll die. It's not a jump through this random hoop to impress me, it's I'm trying to keep you safe here. <laughs> but exactly, they think they know better than God, actually. They think, actually, oh yeah, if we go our way, that's going to end up better for us than go God's way, which is exactly putting um, themselves in God's place. Which actually means here, I think we've got all three of the layers of this thing we talked about. There's clearly a breaking of a command. God says, don't do this. They do it. 
But in doing that, they are putting themselves in God's place because they're saying, we know better than God. And in doing that, they are failing in their obligations as creatures who should actually follow the directives of their creator. Mm-hmm. Both it makes sense because he's the one who's going to know what's best. And also because that's um, a duty that we have as those in that position. So I think, yeah, all three of those are at work um, in that. Is why I think those are what kind of sin are, sin is. And what about the effects? What happens as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in here? Yeah, toil, strife, separation from God. So yeah, a, a big impact is on relationship with God and they're being cast out of the garden. You know, a, an exile is being taken away, which then biblically becomes judgment throughout. So go back to our books. You look at the curses in Leviticus and in um, Deuteronomy, exile as in being taken away from the place where God is, is the pinnacle, really, of the curses and problems. Yep, they become corrupted. There was, you said, toil, what was you saying? Innocence and impurity becomes corruption. They're corrupted, they're, they're no longer yeah. considered the way God created us. Yes. There's a, that, that creates the, the, the need for a separation. Yeah, because you get the Leviticus problem of what about the holy people and the imperfect people, or the, or the perfect God, imperfect people. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So that's. We're not kind of told that explicitly, I think, in Genesis 3 about the fact they're now, yeah, it's been that language corrupted or imperfect, but it's clearly the case because they need to be sent away. It's kind of implied in the, in the action. Relationship with God is disrupted. What else is disrupted? Relationships with each other. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. They start, as soon as God turns out to ask what's happened, they start finger pointing. They're told that actually now there's going to be tension in their relationship together. Yeah, so it's not surprising that God's key command is to love him and love neighbour, because actually the two things that sin most does is disrupt our love for him, relationship with him, and our love for one another and our love for neighbour. And isn't that to do with trust? Because I think when Satan sowed seeds of doubt, didn't he? Mm. He's God. Yeah, yeah. Truly God. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's one of his strategies. Our relationships with one another, that's trust as well. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it becomes an inherent or a natural distrust. That's really true, yeah. Yeah, that's the key one. Yeah, these thorns, these thistles, they're going to, be able to eat from the lamb, but it's going to be hard work actually, and life's um, <coughs> going to be difficult. Also, also, sorry. I was going to say, we also had a discussion about the appearance of fear and shame. Yes. There wasn't fear and there wasn't shame before. The man ran and hid, or they ran and hid because they were afraid. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the appearance of shame and the you know, perfect love casts out fear, and so you, this is the sort of the first step away from that. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, yeah. So the fact that at the end of Genesis 2, they're naked and unashamed, <coughs> isn't particularly, about, it is talking about physical nakedness, but that's not the point. The point is they were totally, utterly, fully known, both by each other and by God, and that was utterly unproblematic, utterly unashamed. And that's deliberately there at the end of Genesis 2 to set us up for the problem of Genesis 3. And actually, of course, when you come right to the Bible story, one of the about the Bible story, the gospel is we are totally, utterly known by God and yet totally, utterly loved. And that's the beautiful kind of shock of it for us. Actually, we're back in that thing of being unashamed to be fully and completely, completely known. I was just going to say, is it, well, there's like two points. There's one that, that, was, that was just raised then. It, but what I was going to say was that um, as well, the concept of purity that we're talking about, um, sort of at the start, that that is 
Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> but there's also one point where it says somewhere here that God makes um, clothes for them. Mm-hmm. But he sends them out. Why? Why? <coughs> Why does he send them out naked and they find whatever they need to? Oh, you mean to be closed and after he sent them out? Yeah. 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 Which I, th- yeah, I think exactly. So it's interesting that the naked and unashamed, yeah. then God clothes, which I want is a really pragmatic thing, but I think absolutely it's a picture as well of God is going to be the one who is going to clothe, as he eventually does, he clothes with Christ eventually to take away shame. Yeah, so, so it is about them being conscious of their physical nakedness, but actually that is much, has a much deeper significance, I think, actually, this is God's gift. And, you know, it's so important that God is the one who does that. It's not that they're able, they can't, they try to fashion their own stuff, doesn't do the job. Only God's the one, though, who can solve this problem. Some people would say the fact that it's the first reference to animal death and the shedding of blood is significant, of the shedding of blood is necessary for the clothing. Um, which I think, yeah, it's a pretty fair point. Can I mention something about nakedness as We've no, we've no in his sons. Yeah, in Genesis nine, whatever. Oh yeah, so only, yeah, I mean, yeah, so Leviticus um, 18 and 20 was about not uncovering the nakedness of someone else, which is basis euphemism for having sex. Um, and, and that may be what's happening in the Noah story with Noah and his sons as well, which is why the reaction, yeah, to what us seems like a fairly minor thing, the reaction's quite strong, because actually it may be about some sort of sexual act rather than just seeing nakedness. Um, but certainly, you know, the Genesis 2, naked and unashamed, end of Genesis 2, links to why sex is reserved for marriage, in a sense, actually. A marriage is a relationship where, of all, you should be most known and yet fully loved, because you've committed to a lifelong commitment of love by laying down your life for each other. And of course, that relationship is meant to be illustrative of Christ and the church. And so the fact that, you know, generally speaking, your spouse is the only person you get naked in front of once you're an adult, um, and that sex is birth and marriage, that's part of why it is actually. It's a picture of this, I can be completely known and completely loved, because marriage in that way is meant to be a picture of the Christ church relationship. We, is there a sense they lose protection as well because the serpent then can bruise their heel? That mm. happened before, did it? So, or. Yeah, it's a, sense, a sense of protection or vulnerability, wasn't it more? Yeah, they're, they're, they're more. I suppose they're more in the, in the way of the consequences of sin, aren't they? They're more. Yeah. More vulnerable. More vulnerable, yeah. I think that is true, yeah, yeah. The language was friendly to them all, I suppose, to something. It's become. Yeah, and, and we don't see it clear in Genesis 3, but later scripture will make it clear that actually in the first sinful human act, we as humanity give over some authority to the devil. He's the ruler of the world. Jesus is the ruler of the world. Prince of the power of the air, Paul calls him Ephesians 2. They're, 
there, you know, so, so you can do the Bible story in terms of kingship, that actually we were in the image of God, which is a royal image. We were meant to be the rulers of God's earth on behalf of him. Actually, we fail in that duty. We hand over some of the kingship and the royal rule to the devil. Jesus comes, he defeats the devil, he becomes the king, he's crucified as king. In doing that, he fulfills the human commission, which is why Hebrews can take Psalm, whatever it is, eight, about man being made a little lower than God and stuff, you know, which is talking about humanity in general. Hebrews says it's about Jesus. Why is that? It's because Jesus is fulfilling the human commission of being the image of God who rules over. And that's why in the new creation, we become rulers alongside Christ. Now, don't you know you'll judge the angels and stuff? So, so you can do the Bible story in terms of kind of kingship, royalty, and what happens in this point, yes, we give over some of that to the enemy, which absolutely leaves humans in a very vulnerable, vulnerable position. Definitely. One last thing just to point out on this passage, I think this is really helpful. Notice the strategies of the serpent. So he starts with, did God actually say? Satan throws doubt on what God has said. Then he says, you shall not eat of any tree. He's misquoting God, but not only misquoting God, he's misquoting him in such a way that he makes God seem very different to how he is. By saying, you shall not eat from any tree, he makes God sound harsh and stingy, like a kind of very mean dictator. What God had actually said is, you can eat from any tree, but this one's not going to be good for you, so keep away from that. That's the words of a loving, generous, caring father. Actually, Satan changes the words, and also through that changes the picture of who God is. He um, then says, you will not surely die. He just outright contradicts what God says, a very plain one. And then actually we're told that when the woman saw the tree in the discussion we've had about how her desires and senses are attracted to the tree, the sense of the devil taking and using what are good and God-given natural desires and senses, and actually using them for bad things. And often it's our appreciation for beauty, particularly, which in various different ways um, the enemy seeks to skew and to misuse. Let's come to Romans 1, um, just for time. <coughs> what about, um, what do you find this, these verses tell us about what sin actually is? The suppression of the truth, and what is the truth which is suppressed? That God's the creator. Yeah, God yeah, and we're the creature. So we're all coming back to this kind of stuff. And actually, the great creature creates the language is <coughs> very explicit in this, isn't it? Absolutely. The, the problem, so the unrighteousness flows from a suppressing of the truth, the truth being, yeah, that God is creator and therefore that we have um, obligations to him. I think particularly it's the truth that God exists and that he is God. Um, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things have been made. So Paul say, actually, in, in the creative world around us, there's enough to know that God exists and that he is God. The divine nature in the sense of he's creator, we're creature, he's very different from us. And therefore, that we should give him honour and thanks. But actually, it's our failure to do that that is the problem. Um, it's the, yeah, the creatures failing in their creaturely duty to the creator that enters the problem. I think for Paul here, I think that is the absolute kind of the heart of sin. But then you also see it gets expressed in lots of things. So he starts with that. 
And then he begins to work through various examples of where that's expressed. That's expressed in sexual sin in general, he says, in 24 to 25. Then he gives a more specific example of same-sex sexual sin and then lists of, you know, all manner of things, um, strive, deceit, maliciousness, covetousness, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty. All these kind of things are expressions of that. It's a bit like we talked about the layers of what is sin. At the root is the creature-creator issue of not noticing that. And actually the shoots of that comes murder, sexual sin, all these kind of different things, being faithless, all those. So I think Paul is saying, <laughs> no, I have tried to say what Paul is saying. It's not that Paul is saying what I said. He said it first. Uh, I got it from him, those different layers of sin. Did you think, about, why is there no mention of God's law in this passage? Because some people, you know, define sin as breaking God's law. There's no mention of law in this passage. Because of breaking God's law is the result of sin. Sin is not recognising God, and therefore you start breaking his laws. Nice, yeah. Since they're not the point. Yeah, I think that's so, yeah, sin's deeper. It's a deeper problem. It's about the thing is why I'm saying we are more simple than we realise. Our problem is far deeper. And you're absolutely right, yeah, he doesn't need to get as far as mentioning a law even, because actually it's fundamentally they're already a kind of a problem. And although he doesn't use the language, almost it's a very natural law in the sense of there's things written into the grain of how things are, how God's created things to be, which means things are fundamentally um, right or wrong already. And there's a really, you know, the really pragmatic thing why here, because he's talking very generically and probably has in mind more Gentiles than Jews. And so in the next chapter, he'll go on to the Jews who think, oh, but we've got the law. So we're kind of, you know, we're kind of okay or we're... Uh, kind of protected in that. And then what about from Romans 1, how does God respond to sin? What are the consequences of sin? Um, Sorry? Sorry, that sounds really harsh. <laughs> well, you're right though. He says to ourselves. Yeah. We don't want him. So he's offered and offered and offered. Yeah. You know, everything that we want. Absolutely, because yeah, there's. Do you notice the repeated phrase that comes up? So in each paragraph, beginning of each paragraph. Just the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so how does God respond to sin? He responds with the revelation of His wrath. That's how the whole passage opens. Wrath being His just and holy anger and punishment of sin. But then what's actually mean for God to reveal His wrath? Because it's present tense as well. It's Paul saying present tense as he's writing. The wrath of God is being revealed. What's it actually mean? How does it actually work out? Yeah, it's actually in abandoning people to themselves in a sense, or giving over, basically allowing people to continue in sin. So how in the present tense does God punish sin? Actually, it's by allowing people to continue in sin. That's really interesting and a really helpful kind of side pastoral point. How does God punish sin? He uses more sin. That very clearly tells us sin isn't good for us. Actually, you know, so why would we ever want to choose to continue in sin if that is how God was going, would punish us if he was going to? Now, as a Christian, God's never going to punish us. Why would we choose to put ourselves in the situation of experiencing the same thing? It shows the folly of sin. There's actually real folly in sin. It's the whole thing of why it makes, it's not arbitrary what God says, but what we should and shouldn't do. Actually, sin isn't good for us. And so actually, it's, it's, it's abandoning people to their sin, allowing their sin to continue, because it's not good for them. It's actually a way in present tense um, God punishes sin and reacts to it. And there's something else. What does sin do to a person? There's a few phrases which indicate it actually happens to an individual when we are handed over to sin in that way. It makes us believe that 
things which are actually wrong are actually right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what we're being taught. The nerd people are saying that, that it encourages you to try and get other people to say yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so it impacts the thinking, impacts how we view things, how we understand claiming to be wise, they became fools. He says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Yeah, so sin actually has an effect. And these passages pair so well. This is explaining, because in a sense, Paul here is talking about individual experience. Well, he is and he isn't. He's talking about the corporate experience of humanity, what's happened across humanity always since Genesis 3. And this is almost his commentary on Genesis 3. And maybe it's one of the points we don't see as clearly immediately in Genesis 3. You see it as Genesis unfolds, <coughs> that actually yeah, affects our minds, affects our understanding of what's right and wrong. It chooses us to go to that folly of continuing in sin rather than the wisdom, and the mind gets changed. In a sense, it's saying we get changed and you're corrupted, in a sense, that our very core. <coughs> of course, so again, this is where we get good news of the gospel. You come through Romans to kind of the answer to this stuff, you get to the beginning of the practical outworking for day-to-day life in Romans 12, and we're told to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Romans 1, that God gave them up to a debased mind. Actually, the gospel is the way we can have a renewed mind. God goes to the core of the issue and brings the, um, brings the solution to that. Anything else anyone wanted to raise on Romans 1? Mm. I thought it was a really good illustration about the root of sin and then the shoots of sin. Then he does something about flowers. But not now, they've been the previous. Yeah, yeah. That was <clears throat> those three levels of sin we worked down. I think if you go in reverse, you can kind of use that kind of agricultural or flowering metaphor. The roots of sin, yeah, is the you know, stuff under the ground where it kind of all starts from would be that failure to recognise our obligations as creatures to the creator. That then I think gives birth to is kind of the shoot comes out of that, which is the failure to trust God and attempt to take his place. We try and put ourselves as the creator. And from that shoot grows the flowers of actually breaking God's laws. And so I think, I think the, the, the definition of what is sin as breaking God's law actually only gets us so far. You don't, that's only the, flower, the most obvious bit in a sense, but actually that's because of you've got the shoot and you've got the roots and it kind of flows up that way. <clears throat> which I think is why, why, why we had the correct comment, I think, of Paul doesn't really need to talk about the law here because he's dealing with the deeper issues, you know, actually. Um, breaking the law just comes as the outworking, outworking of those. Let's take our five-minute break for this session. Um, <clears throat> where are we? A few minutes before 10 to, we'll come back, grab a coffee, uh, stretch your legs, and we'll do the last section then. Okay. <coughs> Let's talk about Adam's sin and us. This is a, a big part of this debate within the doctrine of sin. What is the actual, uh, well, it's actually expanding what we said already. What's the impact of the sin of Adam, that first sin, upon us? What's the relationship between that and us? What impacts it have on us? Traditionally, this is called original sin, although that kind of, in many ways, is an unhelpful, complicated, or complicating term. I think concepts of inherited sin or even received sin are actually a better way of conceiving of what we're talking about. And there's two different elements really to that. The first is what we might call received corruption, which we've hinted at already. The way actually we in our kind of being almost are impacted by sin and corrupted by that. That through Adam's sin, human nature was corrupted. So every human who's been born since has this propensity to this draw to sin we find it easy to sin it comes naturally to us 
and also actually an inability to do things that are truly spiritual God, uh, spiritually good and to truly please God. So we actually divide that down into two things. Within receive corruption is both total depravity and total inability. So total depravity is the idea that actually because we are impacted by sin that way, every part of us is impacted by and is corrupted by sin. That the whole of a human person is impacted by sin. A few verses that point in that direction, things like Psalm 51, David's great psalm of confession, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or Psalm 58, The wicked are estranged from the womb, they go astray from birth, speaking lies. Astray from birth, as in this is so much the automatic thing for us, it just happens straight away. Jeremiah 17, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick, who can understand it? The heart, one of the key elements of us, has been impacted by, corrupted by sin. Or Paul in Romans 7, and there's a great debate about who he's talking as at this point, but either way, he says, For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. At very least, he's talking about a non-Christian experience, and I think that is what he's talking about. He's saying nothing good dwells in me. Ephesians 4, they're dark in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Again, the heart has been impacted. Or Titus 1, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Another part of our being he's talking about is the idea of total depravity is all of us, every part of us is impacted by sin, which is that thing I've said a few times of we are much more sinful than we realise. Our problem is not that we occasionally make bad decisions and we occasionally break the old law of God. Actually, our problem is that we are just deeply in every part infected with, kind of riddled with sin. But it's important to notice total depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It sounds quite like it means or we are you know, the worst that could possibly be. That's not actually what total depravity means. And it doesn't mean that we will engage in every form of sin. It's just talking about the fact that every part of us is um, impacted by, affected by sin. And that it also doesn't mean we can't, outside of Christ, notice good and bad and can't admire virtuous things. Again, it doesn't mean there's that ability isn't there. But I think scripture is really clear that <clears throat> sin entering into human existence has impacted human, the human constitution almost. So there's that total depravity, but then also in received corruption, there's total inability. Actually, because we've received that corruption, we are utterly unable to do anything that will ultimately please God, or that can be said to be kind of spiritually good. And we can't on our own, without God intervening, we can't on our own turn away from sin and turn away from our focus on ourselves and turn to God. Loads of scriptural support for that. A few I'll pick out Isaiah. We've all become like one who's unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even deeds which are fundamentally good things actually are polluted by this inherited corruption. Um, Jesus is saying, no one can come to me unless the Father who is sent draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's an inability for us to respond to Jesus until he first does something. Why? Because we're so deeply impacted by sin, we're unable in that way. The second half of that verse we read already from Romans 17, Paul saying, I know nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out. As I say, I'm convinced that's him talking of a non-Christian perspective. 
I'm unable, he says, actually to do what's right. I can see what's right and wrong, but I'm unable to actually do it. Or talking later, Romans 8, he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. He does not submit to God's law. It doesn't stop there. He says, indeed, it cannot. That actually outside of Christ, we cannot. There's an inability to submit to God's law. I think it's the same kind of thing we're seeing in the first verses of that famous summary of the gospel in Ephesians 2. You were dead. If you're dead, you can't do much in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And on whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, it's just the inevitable, natural kind of thing. What this doesn't mean is that people who aren't Christians can't do good things, can't do things that are virtuous or admirable. Or even, um, but even those virtuous things are tainted by sin, are impacted by sin. Partly because actually, in a sense, they won't be motivated by the right things. Someone who's not a follower of Christ, they're not going to be motivated by uh, a love of God uh, and obedience to his way. I think we've already kind of talked about the complexities of sin. Actually, motive is a factor in there as well. <clears throat> and so, again, total inability as part of received corruption shows us the problem is much bigger much deeper than we might often assume. And so what God needed to do in order to save and rescue to solve the problem was much bigger than we might often assume. That's half of this. We've got a received um, corruption where it affects us, you know, our ability to do good, uh, our total depravity. And then more complicatedly and more controversially is the concept of received guilt. The idea that all people are considered by God to be guilty on the basis of or because of um, Adam's sin. That his sin is imputed to us, imputed meaning kind of reckoned to our account, considered to be on our account as if we had committed that sin. And that's something we see in Romans 5, a kind of famous passage on this. So Paul starts his passage, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now we can get the easy bit fairly easily. Sin came into the world through one man. We've seen that happen already. Death comes through sin. We know that's what was warned in Genesis 2. We know that's what happens um, as the ultimate outcome in Genesis. But then he says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The question becomes, what does all sinned mean? Does he mean death spreads to all men because all sinned in Adam's sin, as in all are considered guilty and receive the wages of sin for that sin? Or does he mean all sinned in the sense of all followed in the example of Adam, we all become like him, we all sin in our own selves and commit our own sinful acts? <clears throat> the second one is probably what we feel most instinctively inclined to, but it seems to be the form which actually makes sense of what Paul goes on to say. Because he goes on to, or immediately from that, he goes on to begin to talk about the time between Adam and Moses. So he started just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Then he explains that in the following verses. For sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin's not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So he's saying, notice that between Adam and Moses, law hadn't been given. There was a law in the Garden of Eden, and there was a law given at Sinai, in Exodus, in Leviticus and co. But there was no law um, 
outlined and made explicit in the time between. But he says, also noticed, all those people still died. They all still received and experienced the waves of sin, the impact and the consequence of sin, death. He says, therefore, it must be that they weren't being, um, in that sense, judged for their own sins, because actually that law wasn't there. They must have been being judged, actually, for the sin that had been against a law, the sin of Adam. He's using that example to try and reason to show us that all sinned means all sinned in the sin of Adam, all considered guilty for that. <clears throat> Which then makes sense of the comparison he goes on to make between Adam and Christ. He kind of goes in this passage through some clarifications, then chapter, uh, verse 18 of Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, from the one act of Adam, all are considered guilty, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life of all men. Christ's one act impacts others. Or, as he summarised it a little bit earlier, Adam he describes as a type of one who was to come. Type being kind of a, a pattern who sets up how something works. Adam set up the pattern of the actions of the one are going to affect the many in the same way that Christ, his actions of the one, affect the many. And what's important is Paul has this kind of... Um, this parallel he lays between Adam and the impact of bringing uh, condemnation for all men, Christ's righteous act, the impact of bringing justification for the life of all men. And there's a parallel, and there's no implication of a middle term. There's no implication that these things work differently. It's not, he's not, he doesn't seem to be implying Adam sins, and because of that, we all get a sinful nature, which means we sin as well. That doesn't, this isn't what he <laughs> seems to say. And of course, if that was the case, that middle term would disrupt the parallel of Christ. It's not the case that Christ dies on the cross. That's a really good example for us. So we do the right stuff, so therefore we're saved. That's not how it is. It's not that Christ inspires us to do something that gets justification in life. It's that his act gets justification in life. So to have a direct parallel between Christ and Adam, it's also necessary to say the act of Adam brings that result rather than there being a middle term of him causing us to do something. See what I mean? Does that make that clear or not? <clears throat> it's, to have the parallel directly, it's got to be in that way. Which means, Paul is telling us, God sees all of humanity as in one of either two groups. And these groups have these representative figureheads of Adam and of Christ. And in each case, the act of the figurehead, Christ or Adam, affects the situation of those in the group. The actions of the one affects the many. This always makes me think of those times back in school, if you remember, you think back <coughs> to primary school, my memory is, when someone would do something and uh, no one would know who had done it and everyone would get in trouble, therefore, for this thing. The action of one was affecting everyone. We're all deemed to be in the group of whoever has done this awful thing. I don't know, you lose break time, what it might be. But then if one person owns up and takes that punishment, even actually if they weren't the person who did it, maybe there's a very noble child who thinks, I will lose my break time on behalf of you. They own up, they take the punishment, everyone else gets the result of that and gets to go out to a playtime or whatever it is. Again, the actions of one are affecting the many because the group are kind of considered together. That's kind of a bit like what's happening here, I think, in the sense of God seeing us as in groups who are uh, receiving the consequences of and impacted by the actions of one, by in this case, these particular uh, figureheads. And what that means, I think importantly, is actually this received guilt <coughs> doesn't come to us kind of through the biological channels, as it were. It's not received through um, the family trees kind of passed down, 
Because if that was the case, we would be guilty not only of Adam's sin, but also of all the sins of all the people come before us in our family trees, which is not something that Scripture seems to imply. It would also be very problematic because it would imply that Christ also received that. And so the sinlessness of Christ would be compromised if actually it's through biological descent that we receive this guilt on behalf of Adam. Actually, that thing of imputing, of God reckoning, considering, counting something to an account is the important thing, is that God views humanity as in one of these two groups. Which very understandably, the question, no doubt, going through our minds is, well, actually, is it fair, is it right for God to think in that way and God to treat us in the way? A few kind of reflections on that. One which sounds kind of, um, what's the word? Cheek is not the word. Sounds like I'm avoiding the question, but I'm not. I think it's an important one. Is it fair for God to treat us in this way? Well, yes, or else God wouldn't do it. That actually is my first answer. Actually, we should have a humility in our wrestling with theology. Theology must start from a place of humility. Again, it's remembering we are the creatures, he is the creator. What actually is the line that dictates what is right and fair? Well, God is the line or the base of that. So should we, we start from the assumption that, yes, of course, he is. But also there's other things we can say. It's also true that all of us commit sins in our own lives. So even in a sense, we have no grounds on which to object to being considered guilty by God because we all know that we all do things that render us guilty anyway. So even if we weren't considered guilty for Adam's sin, we know we'd be actually the same situation anyway. It kind of doesn't really change that. And it's also striking, I think, that when the Bible talks about judgment, the emphasis always is on the specific things we do, the specific acts that we are held responsible for, the things we do. That's very much where the, uh, the weight, yeah, the weight and the emphasis is put. But perhaps most importantly, if we object to being found guilty because of Adam's sin, by logic, we must also object to being found righteous on the basis of Christ's righteous act. In a sense of actually, why has God orchestrated things in this way? It was because part of his wonderful, glorious plan, actually, to save and to deliver, to justify in that way. It's basically to our advantage that God treats us according to the figureheads of these groups. Which, given that, you know, whether he did it with Adam or not, we'd be in that bad situation anyway, it kind of doesn't matter in a sense that he therefore treats us in that group. But it's a huge benefit because it means actually he can treat us in that way with Christ. So it is a tricky doctrine in some ways, I think, a controversial one in some ways. I do, I, it's one of those things, I think, I think it's taught there in Romans 5. I'm pretty certain it's taught there in, in Romans 5. And it does make sense of the gospel and in the end ends up being good news for us, though it is a tricky one. This is briefed about the sin, sin and the Christian life. Actually, we want to kind of bring this back to not just being a kind of ethereal doctrine over here. What about how this begins to hit home for us? First, is to talk very briefly about Jesus and sin. This is so important to point out that Jesus was utterly sinful. So he didn't, receive, he didn't experience received corruption or received guilt, and he never committed an act of sin. That's so important for us to um, affirm and it seems to be that the virgin birth is part of, or is, plays into that. One of the reasons it would seem why it was important for the kind of normal way things work in the normal family lines to be disrupted, actually, <coughs> was to uh, break Jesus out of that kind of flow of how things work there. We've said received guilt doesn't flow through the family trees, that wasn't an issue, but received corruption does. But actually the implication in scripture is that the virgin birth is what frees Jesus from them. I think you kind of see that in... Um, in Luke 1, 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, because of this reason, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So actually the holiness, as in not receiving, not having received corruption, is because of conception through the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth. And then also scripture emphasises very clearly that Jesus was like us in every way as a human, except for sin. He was without sin. So Paul can say in Romans 8, 3, God has done what the law, weak in mother flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns in the flesh. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, i.e. there was a difference. It wasn't sinful flesh. That's the one difference in a sense between Jesus' humanity and ours. He was 4.15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathise with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He fully knows, fully understands the human plight, human experience, and yet is <coughs> without sin. As a side note, that comes back to the conversation we had earlier about internal and external desires, and Jesus experienced external desires, but not internal sinful desires. Um, yeah, you going to? If it was the virgin birth that Jesus didn't inherit sin, doesn't that imply that the sin comes through men? Well, yeah, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I, I think just the idea is the normal way of things is disrupted and intervened, you know. One could say, I mean, we're just not told, so speculation may help helpful, you know. One could say the, um, the Holy Spirit trumps it in a sense, literally the, the, the holiness of the Spirit uh, at work in that conception trumps what would have been received corruption from Mary, maybe. So, in a sense, we know the consequence. We know Jesus wasn't... Um, didn't receive those things, those verses we just seen there exactly, it would make sense that the uniqueness of his conception would be in some way explains that. But yeah, we don't actually actually know. And so there's nowhere else in Scripture to imply that men are the particular problem of passing on this stuff. So um, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting we go away with that, but who knows. Is sin spiritual? Is it? Say more. So, when we talk about sin, we talk about it as, a, as an act. But it seems to be, if you can pass from Adam to us, it's just something that's, you know, it's always a, 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 a spiritual thing that happens with Mm. Well, I think that's where it's important that there's this distinction between received corruption, as in the fact that we are impacted by sin in the sense that we have this propensity towards sin, we're unable to do the right thing, which does come, the scripture seems to teach, through biological descent. Whereas actually the, the guilt we receive because of Adam's sin doesn't come from biological descent. It comes that thing if we're in that group and God imputes it to us as the word theologians use, which means kind of reckons it to our account, considers it as ours. <clears throat> so, which I think is a bit different. So I don't think means, I mean, what it mean for sin to be spiritual? Do you mean spiritual as in non-physical? Or? Yes, or... What, what, what is it, what's the burden that we actually receive? We, we know what, uh, what the effects are, but when we talk about sin as a component, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what that actually is. No, very, very good question. What is it that actually sin is a, maybe, is it that sin is a quality that other things have? So actions and desires can be sin, they're, they're the actual things and the quality, quality they have 
is sin. Does that make sense? Rather than sin, yeah, being a quantifiable or tangible thing. I mean, it's all quite metaphysical, I don't know. But I mean, helpful, yeah, helpful to think about. Some people do talk about, some theologians talk about sin in that way, in terms of being a quality of other things. Maybe that is why they do that, actually. Um, there is a spiritual yeah. sense, isn't there, in, that in all, all men died in Adam? I can't quote the scripture. But mm-hmm. So when Adam sinned, death came into the world, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Which is a consequence. Yeah. And then while you were talking, I was thinking about we're all born into this world and you just imbibe stuff, don't you? Um, you might not be simple when you're born, but you start picking up all these wrong ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a classic question in moral philosophy. You know, are, we, are we born evil or do we learn it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, all, we all know that little children at a very young age know what they do when they do things wrong. Some people, would, some moral psychologists would still say it's still learnt behaviour. I'm not convinced they can be. Um, but, you know, that's an interesting... Or, biblically, we can say the answer no is we are born in that way, with that inclination to that. But even outside of Christian circles, that's kind of debated and looked at. Who's Oh, you mean Adam and Eve? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, certainly a biblical perspective. We can say, yeah, it's not, it's not learned. When God said, "What have you done?" You know, uh, we didn't say what they'd done. Just... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just for time um, keep moving. To emphasize this, Jesus is likening everywhere, but without sin. That's such an important thing. And yet, wonderfully, in his death, Jesus was kind of identified with our sins. So much so that Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin, though not himself, he says guilty for it, tainted with it, and was treated in line with our sin, which is what, of course, allows him to be uh, that substitute for us. Isaiah told us it to happen. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Which nicely points us to the gospel as the solution to sin. We've commented several times today that actually the doctrine of sin makes us realise we are more sinful than we are inclined to think, which makes us realise the gospel is more amazing and the gospel actually covers all of those areas. The solution to receive corruption, receive guilt and our own sins. Receive corruption is about that propensity to sin, it's mastery over us, but in Christ that is broken. Paul talks in Romans 6 about the fact we are slaves to sin. By, <clears throat> that's a natural thing for us by birth. It's, uh, in a sense, it controls us. You know, a slave has to follow their master's bidding and direction. But actually, when we die with Christ, we die to that slave master. Now, actually, to be slaves to righteousness and slaves to God. We are freed from that power. So it's just not true as a Christian that we have to sin. We actually do have the ability to uh, walk free from that. We continue, of course, to battle against the flesh. We still, in this age, carry that over that, be beset by its desires, but actually we have the Spirit living us who helps us to put those desires to death and instead to walk in the way of the Spirit and to grow the fruit of the Spirit. The Gospel also deals with receive guilt. When we are trusting Christ, we moved out of that group where Adam is the figurehead and we receive the result of Adam's actions. We are moved out of that, kind of transposed, as it were, into Christ's group where he is the figurehead, where we receive the outcome of his actions. His obedience and righteousness reckoned to, uh, considered to be on our account, so we receive justification in that. 
And then, of course, the gospel is the solution to our own actual things, the things we think, do, desire, that are rebellious against God, the punishment for those being put on Jesus on the cross. <clears throat> the wrath that Romans 1, Romans 1 that talks about being poured out on Jesus, expended on him. And because of that, God can justify us. The gospel, very importantly, is not a miscarriage of justice. It actually would be unfair, uh, unjust for God to justify us, as in declare us righteous if our sin wasn't dealt with. But Jesus, his death and resurrection is like the middle term in the equation that makes it possible for God to do that and it's still to be just. And that's exactly the point that Paul makes in Romans 3. He's, if anything, he's giving a defence of the justice of God. He's showing how actually the gospel shows God to still be just and right in what he does to them. And then what happens when we as a Christian sin? Well, one thing to say is our position before God is utterly unaffected. If we are in Christ, we are unable to come under condemnation again. That's Romans 8.1. There's now not one bit of condemnation. He kind of puts real emphasis on it. The implication is not one bit of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're told God chooses not to count our sins against us. We are always and always will be righteous and accepted in God's sight if we are in Christ. And not only is our position... I guess that could be our legal position not changed. Also, our position as God's children is not changed. When we are adopted by God, again, that is an irreversible thing and nothing can change it. Our position before God is unaffected, but it is true that our intimacy with God can be affected, can be disrupted by sin. In a sense, I think there's a sense in which our sin can displease and grieve God, both because it offends him and also because he knows it's not good for us. And because of that, sin can disrupt our intimacy with God. And particularly, actually, God uses that. That's a way that God disciplines us. Discipline, importantly, being different from punishment. Punishment is punitive. Discipline is constructive. Discipline is meant to uh, help bring person back to a better place, help bring a good result. Discipline your children is about training them, not just about being punitive for something they might have done. And so actually, we're told in Scripture that God disciplines us for our good, to bring us back to his ways, bring us back to that. And sometimes actually the interruption of our intimacy with God will be part of how God is calling us back to that. There's a nice link here with our books of the Bible. If you look at the curses in Leviticus 26 and at the end of Deuteronomy, they are designed to be constructive. Leviticus, time and time again, God's saying, if you disobey, this will happen. And if you don't then turn back, this will happen. With the point being, this was meant to call you back. When this happens, you're meant to realise, ah, oh, we've got to stretch. We need to come back to faithfulness to God. But God says, if it doesn't happen, I'll send something else. And it's almost like sending lots of warnings designed to draw them back. And the curses actually are discipline designed to be constructive, designed kind of to help them and send warnings to them. The same we see happens in the New Covenant. And then what happens with Christian sins, the last one is our response as Christians is discomfort and repentance. A, a true Christian will not be comfortable continuing in sin. That doesn't mean we don't sometimes continue in sin and have huge battles and struggles of breaking free from sin. All of us will know what it's like to have the frustration of dealing with habitual sin, but that very frustration is the point I'm getting at, actually. That the frustration being there, even actually if we might be doing a very bad job making progress in that, is a sign of saving face, as that discomfort we have. <clears throat> and then we'll also respond to repentance, actually, that genuine desire to change our heart and our thinking and our action to turn away from the sin, to turn to trust God. And I guess that 
distaste for sin that gives us the, um, the oomph or whatever to keep going in the battle against sin, to grow in holiness, even when sometimes that could feel incredibly hard when things do feel they've got a strong hold on us. And finally, just I want to make sure this is rooted well and good, then we'll get a little bit of time for Q&A. Why is this actually all helpful? I, I promised you at the start of this session that it is worth getting to grips with the doctrine of sin and there are useful, practical things on this. Just very quickly, I think this is so helpful in our own Christian walk. I think a fuller, more rounded or whatever, more in-depth understanding of the doctrine of sin as we've been trying to unpack it helps us. I think it helps us to battle sin and to grow in holiness in various ways. One is it helps us see the roots of sin. We talked about how sin isn't just a surface level thing where I keep breaking this law. Actually, it's rooted much more deeply. Actually, I'm trusting myself rather than trusting in God. I'm forgetting that I'm the creature. He's the creator. It helps us battle sin by revealing to us the absurdity of sin. I think I said about Romans 1. What does God do when he wants to punish people in his life? He lets them sin more, which just shows the utter absurdity and folly of us continuing in sin. That's just one of the truths we can speak to ourselves in our battle against sin. And we know how the gospel is the solution to sin, which helps us deal with the guilt and shame we might feel we carry, actually, by preaching the gospel to ourselves, but also the gospel is solution to sin in the sense of freedom from um, that received corruption and that inability or the, uh, and the mastery of sin. And actually, again, reckoning ourselves, as Paul would said in Romans 6, reckoning ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God, actually, it empowers us and equips us to deal with sin. Also, the doctrine of sin helps us have a much greater appreciation of the gospel. Realising the extent of the depth of our sinfulness helps us to realise the great wonder of the gospel. One of the things I started doing in the last, maybe over a year actually, is using the uh, prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer. I meant to put it in the notes, actually, I forgot. Which um, kind of really hammers home how sinful you are but then gloriously brings in the gospel. And just praying it just in my own devotional life regularly did make me begin to realise and reflect more on my sinfulness and realise I am far more sinful than I tend to assume. But simultaneously with that came the realisation is the gospel of God, the grace of God, the goodness and mercy of God is far greater than I've ever assumed as well. It's something really healthy actually about a very realistic view of ourselves. And I think if anything, for us as modern evangelicals, one of our risks is we are not... Uh, realising enough of the severity of sin and our own sinfulness. So it's important. <clears throat> also important, I guess, relatedly, as we support other Christians, in the same way that actually this doctrine can help us think about our walk with God, I think it there actually therefore equips us to help other Christians. We are walking alongside Christian friends as well, helping them in their battle with sin, desire to grow in holiness, also desire to growing appreciation of the gospel. And I think it does help us as we engage with non-Christians. It helps us because we know the problem all people are facing in a sense. I think it helps us as we think about um, communicating the gospel in mission and evangelism. I think it really helps us in our day and age because most people don't have a concept of sin if they're not from a Christian or in some sense kind of religious background. And so actually starting the gospel at the starting point of you're a sinner, it doesn't work for most people in our culture. It's such a foreign thing, it's, can't get their head around it, there's no concept of it. I think we need to start a step back these days and start with creation. You're a created being, and therefore you have obligations to your creator. In the sense of what we've talked about of why sin works, it's not arbitrary, it makes sense. There's no concept in our culture, we need to help people see it makes sense. Actually, I think starting with you're made and known by and loved by God, I think that's the starting point. But because you're made and known and loved by God, 
your obligations to him, all of us fans' obligations. I think that actually when you take a step back and that is, is the starting point, which is also nice because you can do the hypothetical. Let's say for a moment you were made by God. If that were true, it would make sense that all of us would have obligations to God. And probably all of us could admit we probably haven't lived in lives which actually fulfill obligations of a creature to a creator. And actually, I think just getting people to think the hypothetical which is a great way of, in a culture where people are quite clear on, no thank you, actually of getting people to dwell with it and muse on it. Helps us apologetically, we've said, God's laws are not arbitrary, actually an outworking of that deeper thing of him knowing best, us being creatures, he, him being the creator. And it helps us because we know only God can save. Total inability is part of received corruption. Actually, it's really helpful in missions. It just takes off the pressure. The pressure is not on us to find the right words, make the right convincing argument or whatever to convince someone to respond to the gospel. The pressure on us is to, as Paul would put it, to sow seeds, to water seeds, which we know only he can bring the growth. Only he can overcome that total inability we receive. And so actually our job is, in a sense, therefore, relatively easy. And the pressure is not on us. Actually, we do our bit and we partner with God. The pressure basically is on him. He actually saves people. But also the doctrine of sin reminds us that we know that God wants to and is able to save because it points us to the gospel. We should have every faith that God is going to save people as we seek to share the gospel with them. One of making it through a morning of a lot of stuff. Uh, and yeah, difficult things about. We have got, oh, it's a few minutes if there were burning questions people wanted to ask. Oh, there was a question you mentioned to me earlier. Do you want to... yeah, I'm not going to read if I get it out right. Um, <laughs> I've proposed this term recently called pro- progressive liberal thought. And it's kind of tied in with the thing of being a Christian and practicing same sex relationships. And this person said to me, with that being okay, because we're not saying to women who yeah great yeah the classic formulation is what's wrong with gay sex if you eat shellfish isn't it that's what people often say Levisky says shouldn't eat shellfish so why why are christians obsessed with yeah, same-sex sexuality, but we're not obsessed with not eating shellfish. That's often the quintessential way it's put. Which is where it's helpful, yeah. Where a better understanding of it is helpful because we know that the shellfish stuff, the uh, yeah, body discharges, various types stuff, is all about this ritual purity thing. It's a particular, and they're literally grouped together, a particular set of laws, which are all about being unclean or clean, not about being holy or unholy. They're not moral issues in the same way. And so we can, I think we help people understanding that was a certain set of practices and laws designed to be external pictures of actually the internal reality of morality it matters. And then we can take them to Jesus and show Jesus that actually he does away with those external pictures, but he keeps the reality. And he says actually those external things, the washings and stuff don't matter. What matters is what comes from the heart, including, he says, sexual morality which in a Jewish context is defined by Leviticus 18 and 20, really. So I think it's helping people to realise we're not arbitrary going, oh, we don't like that one, that one's a bit silly, but we'll keep that one so we can exclude these people or whatever. Actually, it's thinking, how does this fit in the big story, the big framework of what God has done? Actually, Jesus has done away with these laws, although the principle is still there, 
and actually sexual ethics falls in that principle of actually moral living from the heart <coughs> in line with creational intent as well. And that's the other point I'd make there of when you look at the laws about sexuality in Genesis 18 and 20, they're rooted in Genesis 2, basically, in creation, which means it's a universal kind of thing. Uh, ritual purity was rooted in the cultures, lots of cultures around the time had these concepts of things that are clean or, or unclean. That was a cultural kind of thing of religious practice. Sexual ethics very much not, and Leviticus 18 explicitly makes the point of these sexual ethics are to make you different from the nations, and they're rooted in how God has created and designed things, which would then actually give you an opportunity to talk about, well, why is God created and designed sex to be used in this way, which ultimately big win you always want to get to gets to talk about Jesus. Why is sexual relationships this way? Because sex and marriage are about Christ and the church, ultimately. So it's not an easy question to answer, but actually it's a great one to have in a sense. I'll do a shameless plug for an organisation I work for called Living Out, uh, where we, we exist to help churches, people in society talk about faith and sexuality, run by a bunch of people like myself who are same-sex attracted Christians, and we have a website, livingout.org, full of Articles, blogs, reviews, podcasts, all sorts, helping Christians and others wrestle with questions of sexuality. So you'll find the article explicitly on that and lots of other stuff that would help around that topic there. Any other questions? There's a question I was thinking about, you know, the clean and the unclean. And was there any deep meaning to the clean and the unclean? <laughs> to what, yeah, why is there this? Yeah, there's different theories. So we're never told... There's various different theories people have come up with. Some people think it's about um, <coughs> perfection and imperfection in the sense of clean things are those that conform to a norm and unclean's are things that don't. So, um, so an animal will say, you know, uh, you know, a fish eats its fins and scales and it makes clean, which is kind of the quintessential fish and the most common kind of form of a fish. And so the fish which deviate from that are imperfect in the sense of deviating from norms. Some people think it's that kind of thing, but then we're not told that, it's not kind of clear. Some people think it's about life and death. Um, so bodily discharges, blood particularly, uh, just related with death for understandable reasons, in a sense. Uh, things like you know, birds, it's the birds of prey who eat the carcasses of other birds that are the unclean ones. So some people think it's actually a distinction between life and death some way, that even kind of skin diseases you know, can literally look like rotting flesh and kind of signs of death. Some people think it's rooted in that, which would kind of make sense in a biblical, biblical picture of life and death being really kind of key. Again, though, it's, it's not stated and it's not... Um, there's always exceptions, always things you think, oh, it works quite well apart from what about this, this and this. So they're two of the most common explanations. I think it's important in a sense that Scripture doesn't give me an explanation. I don't necessarily think there is one, because the whole point, I think, was to create these illustrations to teach the deeper message of this is meant to, this surface level stuff is meant to teach about the deeper level of moral purity. So <clears throat> I'm always, some, you know, some people are very keen, or some people make the claim that the food law, always make the claim that the food laws were good for you diet wise, which actually is very contested in kind of whoever looks at that, scientists, whatever. But I just say, we just don't think it matters either way, because actually what we want to get is the principle, not the practice, actually the principle which is still relevant to us. So kind of, yeah, one of the classic questions in, in Bible studies, nobody knows, people love to spend a lot of time trying to find it out. So you can find a matter of books on that, which I think are slightly wasting time. Uh, <laughs>
any more for any more, we're probably there. <laughs>